How's it going, everyone? Um, this week, I will be, well, this day, because I kind of do this every day, I'll be going over an article uh, written on Apologia Anglicana by Dominic Taranto on the Eucharist. And um, I asked uh, Jacob, who who runs Apologia Anglicana, before I, before I did this, because I didn't want to step on his toes or anything, if he didn't want me to, uh, to respond to something. And he did, he did approve. And then he also uh, tweeted earlier uh, that he was looking forward to seeing this response. So this isn't a sign of bad blood or anything. There's no drama behind this. This is just a response video. So I'll also be keeping up with the chat. If you guys had wanted to throw some questions in uh, during this, I'll be keeping up with it. But let's get going. Um, so the title of it, and the link is in the description below, is The Catholic Anglican View of the Eucharist. And I think this uh, kind of goes off my North American Anglican article, which uh, used the Catholic Anglican view of um, the regla fide. So um, let's get started. So it begins with a, a quote from the 39 Articles. So the Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have amongst themselves, one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, insomuch that to the such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same. The bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation, or the change of the substance of bread and wine, in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after a heavenly and spiritual manner, and the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. So, for those that don't have a background in uh, Protestant Eucharistology, basically what what their position is is that there is a certain um, virtue which is infused within the within the bread and the wine, whereby uh, our mouths are said to ascend to heaven, and in the heavenly realm we are to. Calvin describes it like this: we are to eat off of the um off of the flesh and blood of christ so it's a very uh mystical manner in which this happens and uh i like to i like to present it that way because that's a lot more fun than um than describing it after uh boring manners but basically what it's getting at is it's focusing on this text which he quotes from first corinthians ten sixteen that uh the bread and wine themselves aren't necessarily changed into the body and blood of Christ, but themselves are participation of the body and blood of Christ. So the mo so now get this right. The reformed are not saying that the body and blood of Christ aren't present. They're not denying presence, but what they are saying is that it Christ is received in a different mode rather than of a substantial mode as Lutherans and as others would say. So okay, so first he goes over the real presence of Christ in the Father, uh, in the Fathers. Um, but this isn't really anything we're going to disagree upon. I liked this section; it was it was pretty good. I can't see anything right here 
that I would disagree on. Yes. But I did notice uh, a, a bit of a critique that I had is that the mode of presence uh, isn't really spoken of, but only a general view of the genus of real presence, which we're not going to have any disagreement on. Okay, so this is the section where things get, get dicey. So it's talking about the real presence of bread in the fathers. Now, this is going against the, uh, the Roman Catholic view of the fact that the bread and wine aren't present after the manner of substance, after the miracle of transubstantiation, but are changed into the body and blood of Christ. So let's start reading. So while the fathers strongly taught that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are truly present in the Eucharist, they equally taught that the natural substances of bread and wine were also present. And notice that when we're reading through the fathers, this even concept of natural substances being present, and especially not the language of natural substances being present, is not explicitly spoken of, or even I would argue implicitly spoken of. But uh, this is a certain deduction that's being made. So he goes over uh, St. Irenaeus, quote, the oblation of the Eucharist is not a carnal one, but a spiritual. And in this respect, it is pure, for we make an oblation to God of the bread and the cup of blessing. So he's going to really focus on when it talks about bread, cup of blessing, uh, bread, uh, cup, and, and such like this throughout various fathers. Okay. And he makes this conclusion from this. Here, St. Irenaeus maintains the Catholic balance. While we do not want to deny that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, at the same time, it is truly bread and wine. It is truly spiritual. So notice, this isn't exactly what St. Irenaeus says. All St. Irenaeus says is he calls it bread and wine, or bread in the cup of blessing. This is not necessarily in reference to the natural substances, because notice if you go above to the last section, he's going to go over the real presence of Christ in the supper, correct? But notice he doesn't make the deduction that the natural substances of Christ is present in the bread and wine, because he holds to the reformed view of the, of the supper. So he's inconsistent in how he's reading uh, these terms, body and blood, and also in the term bread and wine. You can't have your cake and eat it too, which is what he is he's trying to get at here. So another one by St. Irenaeus. Um, so I want to get to his analysis. So to these Christians, it was a confusion to think that the Eucharist was without the bread and wine. The point of the sacraments is to administer the grace of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. God did not make the sacraments to overtake or destroy the symbols from nature. They were to work all alongside these natural symbols. Notice he's taking natural symbols, uh, symbols and such and making a false inference based on it because, um, in the Roman view of transubstantiation, these symbols are still present in the pure accidents of the, of the bread and wine. There's still this presence of symbols. And there's nothing, um, nothing to say. We, we do not deny that the Eucharist is without bread and wine. 
right here, but we're saying that the bread and wine are present under a different mode, which he should understand, uh, going back to his view of Christ being present in the Eucharist, not under his substance, but under a different mode. So he goes over the liturgy of St. Mark. Okay, now here's a little bit more of of analysis. So given all of these, it seemed more likely that these Christians did not believe that the substances of bread and wine were changed. Notice, I want to make this very clear to you guys, that this is never spoken of in any of these fathers. All these fathers are doing are speaking according to the natural language of Scripture, that we refer to the Eucharist as bread. This isn't making a, uh, a certain affirmation of a certain mode in which the bread is present. It's just saying that there is a certain presence of bread. So I think it would be unfair to say that uh, Roman Catholics did not believe that the bread was present, but only that we believe that bread was present in a different mode. That is the mode of the, the non-subsisting accidents. So it is, it is this mystery that the Ecclesia Anglicana teaches and reinforces in Article 28. It is also reinforced in our liturgy. So he goes over the liturgy. Uh, this isn't really relevant to my task. So here, um, this is where he gets into some explanation right here. So this continues the Catholic theological and liturgical tradition from Scripture and the Fathers unto today. It is clear that the early church fathers believed in a real presence in the Eucharist. So again, real presence in the Eucharist, we're agreed upon this, that genus, all that we disagree in the species of mode. It is also clear that there are early church fathers who did not believe in transubstantiation. Now notice, this is a completely different claim. This is a claim that can't be proved because these questions over the specific mechanics in which Christ was present and in which the bread and the wine were present weren't even treated. So it's extremely anachronistic to say that the fathers explicitly believed in transubstantiation. So this is the beauty of Anglicanism, the via media. We embrace the early Catholic patristics that better support the Anglican view than it does the Zwinglian or the Roman Catholic view. The Catholicity found in the Anglican tradition is not found in the Roman Catholic Church or other Protestant traditions. So uh, this gets into uh, a big pet peeve of mine, and I think this gets into the uh, development of doctrine, really, because what a lot of Anglicans and a lot of the uh, Reformed Catholics are going to do is they're going to put put in the narrative of the Golden Age so that there was this Golden Age of unsullied purity in which the church kept the... Um, the doctrine pure and undefiled in that certain Roman corruptions began to come in uh, within the med medieval church. So we have to uh, only critically appropriate the medieval church. But really what, what is actually being done is that there is a, uh, rather than uh, getting rid of corruptions, there's a uh, stunting of development that the tradition has moved past this bare language of, um, of a uh, just speaking of uh, the sign of things signified and has begun in uh, in our understanding and formulation of eucharistic uh, theology to speak in scholastic modes and manners um, so so really you're 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 just being more simplistic when you when you go like this
So in opposition to this, the Roman Catholic Church's claims that the substances of bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ, what with the accidents or qualities of the bread and wine subsisting in nothing. So yes, subsisting in nothing, but not subsisting by nothing. So he says this is not a development of the patristic doctrine, but an innovation. So again, this is completely without, without proof. Um, this is from a reading of the fathers that I don't think is, it's trying to prove too much when we don't really have much from the fathers when it comes to, when it comes to um, a very uh, orderly and um, not well-defined because it, it is the, the true and Eucharistic do the, uh, doctrine from the New Testament, but it's just really using biblical language is, uh, is what the fathers are doing. And there isn't reflection on questions of uh, mode of presence, of um, exactly how the bread is present or exactly how Christ is present. So here we get into, um, this is what I've been waiting for. This is really what I've been waiting for. Transubstantiation and novel explanation. I'm going to look in the chat real quick. So Caden, he says, I'm slapping the Newman on it. Yes, I'm slapping. I like to slap Newman on everything, no matter what. Okay, so there were some theologians who did teach transubstantiation, but they came along around a millennium after Christ. So nowhere is transubstantiation explicitly taught until around the 10th century. So notice the, uh, the way in which the logic is working here. So the term or explicit formulation of transubstantiation was not used until the 10th century. If something is not explicitly spoken of in that certain way, way in which it's formulated until the 10th century, it is wrong. Therefore, transubstantiation is wrong. So it is, it is not the Roman Catholic claim that it is explicitly taught in the early church fathers. Uh, nowhere are you going to get this claim. Now, the idea of transubstantiation in, oh, there we go. So the idea of transubstantiation is going to be in the fathers, and I'm not going to go into a long discourse about how doctrinal development works, but if you want to look at my videos about that, then, uh, then go ahead. So yet the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again, that by the consecration of bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of, our, of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. So notice, he is going to interpret this decree from the Council of Trent in a certain way. He's going to say the Council of Trent by saying that it's the conviction of the Church of God that there is this basically conversion of the Eucharist into the of the host into the body of Christ that this means that they're claiming that transubstantiation is explicitly taught in the first millennium. And there's, there's really nowhere in this quote, and this is being read into this quote. Yeah, that that's really all I have to, um, all I have to say about this, because I would, I would argue that the early church fathers would teach some sort of conversion of the substance, well, conversion of the host into the body of Christ. Now, this wasn't at all really tersed out in explicit details like it was in the transubstantiationists in the medieval church, but it's spoken of in a more infantile 
uh, and I don't mean that uh, pejoratively, but uh, infantile manner. And if you read uh, Ratramnus and Radbertus, which is, uh, I believe they were ninth century Carolingian theologians writing about exactly how Christ is present in the Eucharist, you can see these uh, similar debates and ideas happening in a very uh, seed form. But it's these questions aren't even treated until until much later. So it's a bit anachronistic to even ask these questions of the father fathers, but with this uh, very base, um, very uh, simple sort of uh, idea that the Eucharist become the host becomes the body of Christ, this is surely present in the fathers. Okay, so the Roman church has to prove that it has always been the conviction of the church that transubstantiation is the correct view of the Eucharist. So notice, always been the conviction of the church that transubstantiation is the correct view of the Eucharist. Now, how, how exactly and in what mode are we talking about it being the conviction and in what way are we saying always? These are some very important questions because in a certain sense, um, we can say, yes, it has always been the conviction of the church that transubstantiation is the correct view of the Eucharist in a, a in, in different ages that's expressed in different ways and understood in, uh, in varying degrees of depth. Yet, um, yet in another sense, this would be wrong to say that it always was the conviction of the Roman church, that transubstantiation is a correct view of the Eucharist because these explicit, uh, terms, ideas, and distinctions were not made by the fathers, but basically they were repeating, um, a lot of what is spoken in, scripture and then with the idea of the sign and the thing signified that is more so the language in which they would have used so that this uh this article so far is suffering uh, from a lack of understanding of historical theology in a roman mode of thinking so any example can be proved that disproves this is enough to show that the roman conception is correct that's not how development of doctrine works um, that's, that's just not how it works. Uh, there's fathers who, who will occasionally disagree on many dogmas in which we hold today. For example, uh, Aquinas's conception of the immaculate conception. He was just wrong on that. And there's very many examples of doctors of the church and church fathers just being wrong. There's nothing wrong with us affirming this. So any one of the previous examples suffices. Notice also this does not have even the burden of proof of what he said, because these examples do not necessarily preclude the uh, being in line with the doctrine of transubstantiation. I would not have to say that any of these fathers erred in their conception of the Eucharist. So to try to maintain the teaching, so this is going to be him going against what I just argued. Some argue that the scriptures and, the, and St. Paul only speak of bread qua accidents and not qua substantia. However, not only is that distinction absent from the fathers, so he's claiming that this distinction is absent from the fathers. Okay? Um, of course, it's absent from the fathers. They weren't speaking in these, these modes of expression. Why would they talk about substance and accidents in this way? Why would they? Their words, such as St. Irenaeus's, lose their meaning if they were speaking qua accidents merely. 
Instead, these explanations are ad hoc attempts to insert a later innovation into earlier texts which knew nothing of it. No, not really. Um, what we're saying is that while they may not have been expressing the later explicit doctrine, that they are in line and in a seed form of development. So, for example, if I found a um, an earlier father before Nicaea that said that the father is God, the son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, would I be justified in saying that this father was, was teaching homoousia? Of course I would be justified because the idea of all, all three persons being God um, in it is implicit that they have one substance, although these earlier fathers would not have spoken exactly in those terms and, um, and such. Okay, and then let's go back up to St. Irenaeus's, whether they lose meaning if we we're speaking qua accidents. Mm -hmm. Because we kind of skipped over a little bit of these. Okay, so I think he's speaking of this. So seeing Irenaeus likewise elsewhere expounds on this reality in the Eucharist. He recounts an event where catechumens, those not baptized um, under torture, torture said that they had heard from their masters that the divine communion was the body and blood of Christ and imagining that it was actually flesh and blood gave their inquisitors answer to that effect. St. Irenaeus corrects their misconception and quotes St. Blondina, who under torture by men who wanted to know if the catechumens were correct said, how should these persons endure such accusations who for the sake of the practice of piety did not unveil themselves even of the flesh that was permitted to them to eat? Um, this is really just going against a carnal view. So maybe he's talking about this quote right here. So let's read this quote entire. So the oblation of the Eucharist is not a carnal one, but a spiritual. And in this respect, it is pure. For we make an oblation to God of the bread and the cup of blessing, giving him thanks in that he has commanded the earth to bring forth these fruits for our nourishment. And then when we have perfected the oblation, we invoke the Holy Spirit that he may exhibit the sacrifice, both the bread, the body of Christ and the cup, the blood of Christ, in order that the receivers of these antitypes may obtain remission of sins and life eternal. Those persons that who perform these oblations in remembrance of the Lord do not fall in with Jewish views, but performing the service after a spiritual manner, they have been called sons of wisdom. I'm not understanding how this would necessarily preclude the Roman view. Let's read that section again. So, and then when we have perfected the oblation, we invoke the Holy Spirit, that he may exhibit the sacrifice, bro both the bread qua accidents, the body of Christ, and the cup qua accidents, the blood of Christ. Yeah, so what Irenaeus is, is getting at here is that the bread is a sign of the thing signified, the blood of Christ, and that the cup is a sign of the thing signified, the blood of Christ. And this idea of the of the sign and the thing signified is expanded by later theologians, the sign being according to the accidents and the thing signified according to the substance. So I'm not really getting at why this distinction would be out of line with uh, with transubstantiation. Okay, let's go back down. A novel explanation. Transubstantiation, the useless miracle. Furthermore, the miracle of transubstantiation is useless. One of the primary purposes of miracles is a way of evangelization. 
During Christ's ministry, he performed countless miracles in public. He could not have done so privately, but he chose to do so where many people could see and have the ability to see his miracles. However, transubstantiation is not one of these, partly because there's no way of verifying it. We can see when someone is healed or when water is turned into wine or when somebody walks on water, but we do not see any changes in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. So a miracle is, is useless if it's not perceived by the senses. So would you say the incarnation is a useless miracle because the, the hypostatic union and the fact that the, uh, the human nature inheres in, um, in the, in the divine person is in, is in hypostasized is useless because it's not perceived to the senses. I'm not really getting why a, a miracle qua miracle needs to be perceived by the senses in order to be useful. Um, there's other reasons for miracles than the way of evangelization. For example, we could talk of baptism being a miracle, but do you see anything when somebody is regenerated by the, by the labor of regeneration? Is, is that corporeal and uh, visible to you? No, I'm not getting why this would be a, uh, an argument that follows. So not only can we not verify it, but it doesn't even do anything that the Anglican view cannot do. Um, it is useless as an effectual help. It would be like destroying the water of baptism in order to emphasize the regenerating grace. The miracle of having Christ's body and blood substantially there instead of the bread and wine does not do anything that the Anglican view does not do. And one could argue it is less effective. Because of the focus on the bread and wine, it draws our attention away from what God is doing in us through the sacrament. What? I th that's, that's really assuming that it's merely bread and wine. Um, if a sacrament is supposed to move the Christian from the sacrament to God, transubstantiation forces man to stay at the sacrament and not ascend up, so as to say. So yeah, I've never... Um, I've never said that transubstantiation, if the Anglican view was right, which I firmly believe it's not right. Um, either way, we are receiving in both views uh, the body and blood of Christ. So I've never argued that it would be less effective, and I've never seen any Roman Catholics arguing that other conceptions of the mode of Christ's presence would be less effective. So I'm not getting where that argument comes from. And then if a sacrament is supposed to move a Christian from the sacrament to God, transubstantiation forces man to stay at the sacrament and not ascend up, so to say. Have you, have you heard of, of sacramental piety? Um, some of the best devotional literature that you're going to get on the relationship between God and the Christian through the sacrament is going to be Roman Catholic. It's going to be, for example, Thomas Aquinas's uh, Corpus Christi hymns in his Corpus Christi office. Uh, I'm, I don't I don't get why just because uh, Christ is present in a certain mode and a more intimate mode that that somehow somehow quenches our devotion. Now, some faithful Roman Catholics will point to the plethora of Eucharistic miracles where the bread is tested and seen to be the flesh of a heart in peril. This does not disprove the previous point for two reasons. Firstly, this is a divergence from the norm of transubstantiation, correct? The reason we can see these miracles is that they are different from what happens every Sunday morning, correct? It is not transubstantiation. 
Correct. It would be a certain trans-accidentation. The doctrine of transubstantiation states that the accidents stay the same. In these instances, the accidents is different. It is not an example of transubstantiation. That would be correct. But I'm not sure how that goes against my view. I'm going to keep up with the chat right now. So... Do you think there is anyone to teach who teaches transubstantiation in the early church? Uh, it depends on what you mean by teach. It really does. That'd be like asking, do you think there's anyone who teaches homoousios in the pre-Nicene church? Well, yeah, the concept was there, and yeah, their statements would be in line with homoousios, but they're not explicitly going around using that term. The only people going around using that term is the Sabellians. I think Cyprian is a good example in the early church about the Eucharist. Yeah, I like Cyprian. I've actually, I've just a few months ago read through all of Cyprian's writings. It's good stuff. <laughs> that apology Anglicana guy was a wicked fool. Am I right? Yeah, the original one was much worse. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to it. Okay, so, but for the sake of argument, let us consider that these are true instances of transubstantiation. Yeah, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna read this section because I don't think there's anybody claiming this. So is there anything in the Anglican view that Rome would deny? Yes. They believe Christ is truly present and that the Holy Spirit is effectually working through the sacrament. Correct. So they would not deny any part of the Anglican view they would just add the changing of the substance. It's a pretty major part of a, of a difference because, I mean, I've made the distinction, I'll continue to make the distinction, that the distinction between the Anglican and Roman view on the mode of Christ's presence is not a difference of genus because we agree that Christ is present, but a difference of, of uh, species because we disagree with, uh, with how Christ is present. But this does not mean that their differences are insignificant or, or anything. So what is the actual purpose of this? If the Anglican view has a real presence of Christ through which his grace is administered, what is the need for Christ's substance? At best, this does nothing other than offer a faulty and highly questionable mechanism through which God's grace is given. At worst, it diverts our attention from truly what is happening. So, I mean, if... <laughs> If you're going to make this argument, this argument's going to cut both ways. So let's let's do a little uh, little role playing here. So what is the actual what is the actual? Um, so they would not deny any part of the Roman view. They would just take away the changing of the substance. What is the actual purpose of this? If the Roman view has a real presence of Christ through which His grace is administered, what is the need? for it being a certain instrument of Christ being received merely and not of substance. At best, this does nothing other than offer a faulty and highly questionable mechanism through which God's grace is given. I, again, this, is, this isn't a, an actual argument because it just, it just isn't an actual argument. You're what what you're saying is that you believe that your mode is mode of Christ's presence is superior to my mode of Christ's presence, which as 
already been disproven that somehow it diverts attention away from away from God. But the the idea that the there's merely a virtue, an operative virtue through which actualized by faith, we receive the uh, the heavenly uh, the uh, body and blood of Christ through heavenly means, you would have to prove that that is a superior mode of presence. So the miracle that Roman Catholics claim happens is a useless miracle. There is no sign that we can use as a devotional tool. Maybe the bread and wine. They're still looking at bread and wine. Are you not looking at bread and wine? It may help them to believe Christ is really present, but effectually this is no different than the Anglican view. In addition to that, I mean, there's a different in ends, but there's quite a different in means. I mean, the fact that God himself is present on the altar offers a very different devotional view than, um, than the fact that the sacrament is only effectual um, in, the, uh, in the liturgy itself. Because that's the classical reform view. They would say, for example, outside of the liturgy, if you have consecrated hosts, you can, it's just normal bread. It's only within the context of the liturgy that it is the sacrament. So in addition to this, the instances that seem to validate their claim are not even instances of transubstantiation. So I don't get what Eucharistic miracles would have to do with uh, what mode in which Christ was present. I've already rejected that as a good argument. So transubstantiation overthroweth the nature of the sacrament. Another reason that transubstantiation does not make sense is that the nature of transubstantiation is not that of any other sacrament. In, in transubstantiation, it is the elements themselves that administer the grace rather than God. Okay. This is not like any of the other sacraments. The Anglican Catechism following the Catholic traditions of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Augustine explain, explains the scriptures well when it teaches that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an invisible and spiritual grace given unto us ordained by Christ himself as a means whereby we receive the same and a pledge to assure us thereof. The outward sign does not itself give the grace, but is the means by which God gives the grace. Yes, correct. And what is the outward sign? I would say the outward sign is bread. He would say the outward sign is bread. But we're talking about in different modes of presence. But this does not, this does not argue against my view. It would argue against both of our views if it would argue against my view. So, for example, in baptism, it is not the water that cleanses us from original sin. It is the act performed by the Holy Spirit. It is not the sacraments themselves that give grace. It is God through the natural signs that affect our souls. God's grace perfects nature. It does not destroy it. The water is the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace. Likewise, it is not the bread and wine themselves that confer grace, correct? Even after consecration, well, it's not. God is using the um, God is using the bread and wine per accidents in order to give grace. So he's completely excluding the idea that when we talk about the sign, we're still speaking about the bread and wine just as much as they're speaking about the bread and wine. 
And when he's speaking about the thing signified, we would say it would be the substance of Christ. And I would argue that there is no thing signified um, except a except a mere uh, instrumental idea. So just as the Holy Spirit is truly and literally present at baptism, the water is not substantially the Holy Spirit. Correct? Christ is truly and literally in the Eucharist, but the bread and wine are not substantially Christ's body and blood. There's different claims made in scripture about baptism and the Eucharist. The, uh, the scriptures call baptism the labor of regeneration, but the Holy Spirit never speaks from heaven and says, this water is my substance. Or I don't, I don't, because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body, so I don't know what he would say. <clears throat> or this water is my grace, or however he would, would say it. So this, uh, this is going to be a constant theme throughout this article, that it continually makes this false equivalence between baptism and the Holy Eucharist. So just because something is like this in baptism means that it can't be like this in the, in the other sacraments, or that it has to be the exact same in the other sacraments. But, uh, for example, um, I could say, well, in baptism, the baptism is given by the minister of the deacon or priest. Therefore, in the Eucharist, the sacrament can be given by the administer, that is, the deacon or priest. But you wouldn't hold that. So I'm not sure why this, why we have to say that outside of the very nature of a sacrament, which would be the same in baptism, the Eucharist, that we have to continue along this, um, these equivalencies. So Martin Luther's objection, I'm going to get back to the chat. Since you believe many Anglicans have valid orders, do you think that these valid priests with valid orders are of the sacrament, even if they reject the doctrine of transubstantiation? Yes, I do. <clears throat> Polygenaglicana is legion. Yes, this right here, what Barely Protestant said. The propitiatory nature of the sacrifice of the Mass is a significant difference. Yes. I, um... I've come to realize more and more as I research the issues that questions of these about the specific mode of Christ's presence, a lot of these um, are blown out of proportion, that there are much bigger differences and much more important differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics than specific definitions about the mode of Christ's presence. That's why it may seem throughout this review that I'm being a little flippant when um, when, when I'm speaking about these, these differences. Okay. Okay, Caden, good, good. I'm glad you're with me, Caden. Militant Jamie, I'm glad you're with me. I don't get this argument comparing it to baptism. Yeah, that's a very um, 
for those who have who have read a lot about polemics over the Eucharist, this is just a very vanilla um, argument that's used often. Is there's going to be this uh, comparison made between baptism and the Eucharist, and saying, well, uh, the waters of baptism aren't transubstantiated; it comes from Wycliffe. Therefore, uh, so the Eucharist doesn't have to be transubstantiated. And I'm not arguing for the absolute necessity of of a uh, transubstantiation to happen in order to give grace, but I am arguing that it happens because that's what scripture, the fathers and the church teaches. So Martin Luther's objection, um, who would agree, who would disagree with you on this? Not that that's not that that doesn't uh, allow you to use him. I just thought it was a little funny. So the last thing I'll bring up as a refutation to transubstantiation is Martin Luther's criticism of this doctrine. In his work, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, that works garbage, by the way, he points out that according to Aristotelian metaphysics, on which the Roman view of transubstantiation hinges, transubstantiation must also be accompanied by transaccidentation. According to Aristotelian metaphysics, substance is that which is neither predicable of a subject nor present in a subject. Accidents, on the other hand, only exist by existing in substantia. For example, white only exists in so much as exists in paper or wood or man. Therefore, Aristotle reasons, everything except primary substances is either predicable of primary substance or present in primary substance. So yeah, this is the argument that um, Alan Rule, don't be such a meanie. I literally just read the article and was shocked about how bad it was. Alan, play nice, play nice. I love Jacob and um, can't be being mean here. Okay, so back to my thought. So taking the, taking the strictly Aristotelian definition, the definition of a accident is that which does not adhere by itself that would actually it would be that which inheres in a substance so there's really um three ways of of going about answering such a claim um and i'm still working out in my mind how to answer such a claim since i wrote a lot about this exact argument but um first there's scotus's argument that the um, inherence of the inherence of the accidents or the nature of inherence that is that is essential to be an accident does not necessarily have to be an actuality. For example, the the whiteness of a cup does necessarily be in but only has to be tending towards that. It only has to have that virtue operative, even if it's not applicable. So, for example, if you, I think honestly, the best uh, illustration of this is the is the reform view of the Eucharist, because uh, they would say that there is a certain operative virtue which is in the which in the Eucharist, which is in actuality, but it does not necessarily come to completion. Uh, until it is until it is received by faith. Faith has a certain actualizing component, yet this virtue is still present. In the same way, an accident can still be an accident if it's 
tending towards inherence, even if that inherence isn't uh, completed in actuality. So Alan asks, did Jacob or Dominic write this one? Dominic wrote this one. We went over this if you were here at the beginning of the stream, Alan. Okay, and now second, the second argument is going to be from Aquinas. Um, he's going to, I think he talks about this in his commentary on the sentences, if I'm remembering correctly. It's a while since I wrote on this, but I've just been thinking about it a bit. Um, his, his second argument is for the redefinition of an accident. And I don't think I myself really, uh, when I was writing against Aquinas on this matter, really adequately answered uh, this solution to the problem. Because what Aquinas is going to say is Aquinas is saying that uh, practically Aristotle's definition is pretty good, that it is, an accident is something which inheres in a substance. Because in, um, in all of ex our experiences, that is how we practically see an accident. But if we're going to go in a more formal sense, an accident is something which does not inhere by itself. Now, not inhering by itself, in, in almost all cases we have in reality, this inherence is in their natural substances. But this is not to say that it couldn't, um, couldn't inhere by a different power and still keep up the nature of an accident. So that's a very interesting argument, which is a broadening of the definition of what an accident is. And I think that that honestly makes makes a lot of sense. And I, in even some of the notes I wrote uh, trying to argue against this argument, they weren't too good. Um, so I, I think if we more helpfully define define an accident as something not inhering in itself, rather uh, rather than something necessarily inhering in a uh, in a substance. And then the third argument, uh, I guess I'll go over the third argument is, um, actually, I won't. I won't go over the third argument. I haven't thought through that one enough. Okay. So the accidents is the attributes or characteristics of the non-physical substance. The substance manifests itself and interacts through the accidents. This is basically my North American Anglican article. I'm getting deja vu. The substance is truly what the thing is. A dog has a certain substance that can manifest itself with different accidents. There are dogs that have different accidents, but they are all truly dogs. For a substance to exist, it has to manifest its specific accidents. And I didn't, I did not get this one. Is uh, he's he's kind of bending it backwards too. So, for a substance to exist, it has to manifest itself in a certain mode of physicality. So, do you want to explain uh, angels to me? Because uh, Actually, angels would have certain accidents, now that I think of it in Thomas. Um, or the supersubstantial God, or, um, or, or uh, primary substance, or certain other ideas where there are substances that do not manifest in specific accidents. Or uh, this really also goes against the Lutheran view of the Eucharist, but I won't even get there. I won't even go there. So the accidents is inextricably tied to the substance. Since the accidents of bread are a manifestation of the substance of bread, a change in the substance to the body of Christ requires a change in accidents to the body of Christ. I don't get why 
metaphysically speaking, because he's speaking on the level of praxis, that in our experiences of substance, they are manifested substance in accidents. But that does not say that it is a metaphysical necessity for substance. Because remember, substance are those things which inhere in themselves. I mean, which not inhere in themselves, but exist in themselves and do not need to inhere in another. So this isn't an argument for metaphysical necessity. And um, yeah. Okay. So actually, I'll wait to get questions since we're on the last... Last paragraph. So while some might argue that transubstantiation is simply a miracle, it is contrary to God's nature to uphold a contradiction. This is correct. This is correct, guys. This is very correct. So if I will, I will say this, if transubstantiation um, necessitated a contradiction in reality, then it would be absurd from a Catholic view of the relationship between faith and reason to say that God upholds it. But what I'm arguing is it does not uphold the contradiction for the reasons that uh, Thomas and Scotus, and you would have to argue that the definition of Thomas is lacking, which I tried, and it's a very difficult thing. If according to transubstantiation, the accidents of bread inhere in nothing, then God would be contradicting the very nature and definition of an accident. So again, see above. In fact, what Rome calls accidents is neither predicable of a subject nor present in a subject. Correct. Therefore, by definition, it must be a substantia. And this also is um, something which annoys me a bit. And um, uh, we are not strict Aristotelianists. Uh, sorry to break it to you, but we and not even Thomas are strict Aristotelianists. While we accept a lot of, of what Aristotle says, um, Catholic philosophy, there is a bit of a um, of a synthesis that goes on between different philosophical schools. For example, there's a very, very strong uh, Neoplatonic influence. So it's completely fine for us to say that Aristotle is wrong. I think it would be more crazy to say that St. Thomas was wrong than to say that Aristotle is wrong especially uh, when it comes to the subject of philosophy, because Thomas is at a much later period of development in the science of philosophy than Aristotle is. Aristotle is an absolute beast and, and an absolute um, just king of the philosophers when it comes to getting the ball rolling. But uh, we're not really bound to strictly uh, hold the definition of Aristotle. And even then, um, Thomas's uh redefinition isn't necessarily going against what Aristotle says, but what uh, St. Thomas is doing is he's developing a bit the definition of an accident because with Aristotle, his definition of an accident is on the level of praxis and not necessarily on the level of theory. Okay. So send any questions you have. Uh, I've, I see one here, but um, I kind of have to, get off here because I got another. So all 11 of you that are here in 30 minutes from now at seven o'clock, I will be having a um, stream on Lutheran Christology, which will be very interesting. This is a subject that I've been reading about for a while, probably for the last uh, about two years since I took um, classes in reformed Christology. Okay. So Heinrich, 
How would you respond to an orthodox argument using Christology that natures don't change, therefore remaining the same, therefore transubstantiation isn't a necessary gloss, but an erroneous? So um, the way in which I've heard Christology being used, I'm not sure if this is the same in what you're arguing, is that Christ has a whole and complete nature of of the humanity and that uh, he has a whole and complete nature of the divinity. Therefore, um, there must be a whole and complete nature of, of the uh, bread and of, of the uh, body of Christ in the sacrament. And you'll get from the very beginning, um, I believe in uh, St. Irenaeus in, um, what would that, uh, Gnostics falsely so-called, Against heresies. Gosh, against heresies. Sorry about that. I don't know why I forgot that. Against heresies, he talks about this idea that uh, in contemplating the sacrament, we are contemplating something which is which is like Christ. But uh, what I will say is I think transubstantiation, honestly, um, has better uh, a better claim to being in accordance with <clears throat> with Christology. Because uh, the way in which Christ is God is different from the way in which Christ is man. Christ has no human hypostasis. Christ only has a divine hypostasis. And then the, uh, the humanity is inhypostasized um, in the divine hypostasis. So there may be what we so call the substance underlying under the species and the outward invisible, uh, the outward invisible expression of the person of the logos and the humanity. So, so really, this this idea is, I, I believe, if you're going to think about the nature of Christ, okay, there is there's divinity hiding under uh, under the flesh, under the human nature of Christ. So God is is um, actually that sounds a bit historian there, but uh, you get what I'm saying. I'll, I'll stop right there. Okay. So I remember your tirade against the Lutherans on Twitter. Those were the good old days. And then Elijah says, do you know how Kajetan comments on Thomas on the topic of transubstantiation? Um, I meant to check that actually, but I didn't because I'm, I'm bad. But uh, I can get you, if you want, the Latin text for that. Just, uh, I think you're in the Discord. So, um. Just hit me up in the Discord. And if you're not a member of the Discord, I will send the link in the live chat right now. Um, let me see. How do I get to the Discord? This is some boomer tech level right here. Okay. So, gosh, this is terrible. How do you share this thing? Oh, you'd go under invite people. That makes sense. Okay, I'm going to send the link to the Discord right in the chat. So, uh, Going right there, and then also patreon.com slash militantcomist to become a patron, unlock a bunch of cool stuff. There's other channels in the Discord. There's weekly articles that I do just for um, just for patrons. So if, so if you'd like to if you'd like to help me out, then um, then you can you can join the Discord. And then also Caden says, come debate me in the Discord. So if you want to debate militant Jamie in the discord then you can go ahead and that's all i have for you today friends i hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your night 
And remember, in about 30 minutes at 7 o'clock, I will be going over Lutheran Christology with Dr. Jack. 